When you look at the cross, what do you see? When you think of the cross, what goes through your mind? Well, the short answer I want to give you this morning is that when you look at the cross, what you see is love. And that when you think of the cross, what should go through your mind is the amazing love of God. Now, that's the short answer, but it's by no means the, the simple answer. I'm reminded of the great quote from Albert Einstein who once said that he didn't care much for simplicity this side of complexity, but simplicity on the other side of complexity would be a great deal, worth a great deal. So I want to take you on a bit of a complex journey today to look at the cross and to think about the cross together. And I'm hoping through this complex journey we can come back not only to the short answer, but actually to the answer that perhaps we can all then own together. But when you take a journey to think about the cross, you have to um, acknowledge at least the cards that are on the table. You have to acknowledge the, the culture and the situation. And for most of us, it probably goes something like this. In our lifetime in North America, we as Protestants have grown up with a particular per- picture and interpretation of the cross, which goes something like this. God is holy, righteous, perfect, and just. We are not. We are sinners. And so our sin is an offense to God for which a penalty must be paid. And so the payment for that penalty, of course, is the life of Christ on the cross. And because we have offended God with our sin and are unrighteous and therefore cannot come into the presence of a righteous God, the only way this can happen is if somebody will pay the price for us. And so in that sense, Christ comes on the cross and with his death, Pays the price, satisfies the demands of a holy God, and makes possible our forgiveness and our life with God in Christ. And, and this is a good and solid theory of what we call atonement. Atonement is a fancy word. If you spell it, it looks like at one month. It's because, how do God and humans, God and creation, uh, how do, how do we all become one. And the theory that I've talked to you about is one that I think a lot of us have grown up with. It's, it's known basically as what's called a substitutionary uh, uh, theory of atonement, which is I should have died because of my sin. I should have been on that cross, uh, but Christ substituted for me. And, um, and probably we've all had sermons, and as a former youth pastor, I've done this as well, where we'll tell the, the assembled um, a multitude that when Christ was hanging on the cross. He saw your face before his eyes as a way of reminding and driving in the point of the substitution and of the sacrifice. And it's a wonderful model and there's much to commend it. But did you know this, that for a thousand years, the church did not talk like that, that this particular interpretation of the cross of Christ, that he was there as a substitute for us, because a price needed to be paid uh, and that God demanded a price would be paid. Uh, this particular theory was developed 1100 A.D. by a guy named St. Anselm. So for more than a thousand years, when the cross was looked at by Christians, they saw other things as well. So part of the complex journey I want to take you on this morning is not forgetting the picture that we talked about that a lot of us grew up with. I want to give you six other pictures that are biblical 
and two sounds that are biblical so that we might have a richer version of what is happening on that cross as Jesus is crucified. Here's the first picture. This comes from Paul. He says what happens on the cross is like a courtroom situation in which a guilty party uh, is declared free. They're allowed to go free. He talks about this to the Romans. He talks about this to the Galatians. He will use a phrase that gets uh, our word that gets translated as justified. It doesn't mean not guilty. Basically, what it means is acquitted. And so the picture here is that you and I indeed have sinned. We have, as Paul said, fallen short of the glory of God, but that we are not going to bear punishment for that. God doesn't look at us and say, well, you never did that. I, but rather, you did it, but I'm not holding you. I'm not, in, in a sense, I'm not going to punish you for this. You are, you are acquitted. Your sins are forgiven. You are allowed to go free. So one of the biblical pictures that Paul liked was of a prisoner going free. So that, that when we look at the cross, we ought to get, get a sense of our own freedom. Our own, uh, the fact that our mistakes are not the most important thing that can be said about us. There's something greater than our sins. So that's one picture. There's another picture uh, that's in the Bible as well, and it's the picture of something that's been captured and held prisoner or hostage that needs to be freed. This is a picture Jesus would have referred to himself when he says this in both Matthew and Mark. I have come uh, to serve and to give my life as a ransom uh, for many. And so the situation here is we are held prisoner. In this, this theory of the cross, we're held prisoner by death. We're held prisoner by sin. We're held prisoner, perhaps, by the author of sin, the evil one. But whatever it is, we're held hostage, and, and we cannot get free on our own. And so in this picture, in a sense, a hostage exchange is arranged. And so in, in a sense of substitution, uh, our place held by sin and death and the evil one, is taken by Christ. And in this exchange, again, we go free. But interestingly, Christ is not held hostage very long, and we'll look at that next Sunday. So that's, many people call that a ransom picture of what's going on the cross. People who were prisoners are free. In the first picture, people who were guilty are now acquitted. There's a third picture, and, and some of you have heard me refer to this before. When you look at the cross, what you see is a great victory that has been won. A battle has been fought, and death and sin and the evil one have been defeated by Christ's death. And so the image sometimes that I will use, and you may have heard me use this before, is the cross is like God's Trojan horse. God's like, well, how can I defeat death once and for all? I know. I will get inside death and defeat it from the inside. And so Paul picks up on this and he says to the Corinthians, Oh, oh um, uh, you know, death, where's your victory? You know, where is the sting of sin? Basically, sin has no power. Death has no power. It has been hoodwinked. It's been tricked. God went in into death itself and defeated it from the inside to show that death 
no longer holds the power. Those of you who love the Chronicles of Narnia, this is one of the pictures. Aslan, of course, tricks the witch by climbing up as a sacrifice, being killed. But lo and behold, that in the end of the story, Aslan is roaming free again and more powerful than ever. This is the victory picture of the cross. What happens is sin and death, the things that kind of hold us down, are even the evil one who um, uh, may be holding us down, are, are tricked and defeated, and a great victory has been won by Christ on the cross. And, and you might think, well, I am kind of held, I, I would have been held, vict- um, held captive by death, but maybe you're not so sure you're held captive by a Sin are the evil one. And I would just point you to something we used to say about the Lord's Prayer. We would say this, lead us not into temptation because we're pretty good at finding it ourselves. And that's the reality that sin sort of had a power over us. But but that's broken and it's broken from the inside. So that's the victory picture of um, of what's happening on the cross. There, another picture of what ha- is happening on the cross comes from Hebrews, and only God knows who wrote Hebrews. I mean, really, none of us are sure who are alive today. But whoever wrote the book of Hebrews was very familiar with the Jewish sacrificial system. And the picture there is, this is the final sacrifice. Jesus has been sacrificed on the cross, and it's interesting, uh, those of you who follow this, that Jesus um, uh, dies at, at the hour of sacrifice, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, so just coincides perfectly with, uh, with the Passover, which you can learn about this afternoon if you're interested at 5 o'clock. But we get this sense that there's a final sacrifice, so there doesn't need to be another sacrifice, uh, says the author of Hebrews, because... Christ paid that sense, that sacrificial price for, um, for all of us, so it doesn't need to be done anymore. And so even at times like Lent and, and when we feel the guilt or the pressure that we should do more or give up more, uh, the final sacrifice reminds us that, wait a minute, wait a minute, everything has been done for us. That needs to be done. Now, interestingly, uh, some some modern scholars have taken a look at this and they see something else going on. This final sacrifice that what it is, it's God's judgment about violence and God's comment about violence, because that's the way the Romans operated. Um, I know in most of our traditional pictures of Jesus on the cross, there's Jesus and there's two thieves at a lower level than Jesus. That could have, could have been, more likely you had to be at eye level, that was the rules for execution, so passerbys could, could look into your eyes and see the pain and the excruciating pain of um, a crucifixion. But the interesting thing is that those three crosses would have been up three of hundreds of crosses. Jerusalem was, the road in was lined with crosses. The road to Rome was lined with crosses outside the city because the Romans were basically saying, don't buck the system or this is what happens to you. We rule with violence, we rule with fear. So some modern scholars look at this final sacrifice picture and say, this is God's judgment upon any violence. That violence is not the way to achieve the means and the ends of the kingdom of God. Look at the Romans, this is how they operate, and look where it got them. They lost. There's no more need for this sort of violence to take place. So that's a picture called the final sacrifice. There's a fifth picture. And this is an interesting picture. This is a picture of, of um, people that have like done wrong or been enemies or maybe they're just strangers, but there's nothing that would hold us together. And it's, it's a picture of unconditional love. Paul put it this way. Paul says this to the Romans, and you probably remember the verse, while we were yet, anybody? Sinners, Christ 
died for us, died for the ungodly. In other words, God wouldn't wait until we got our act together. And so it's a picture of unconditional initiating love. In other words, God decided to love us before we ever became lovable. Some people call this the magnet theory of atonement. And they point to the fact that Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Well, what is that magnet that draws all people? It is this pure, unadulterated, unconditional love that attracts a world that just doesn't see or experience that love. And so the theory is we look at the cross and we see the amazing love that God has for us in Christ. That, that even though we didn't do anything to merit a sacrifice, someone would actually make a sacrifice on our behalf. And we give up our attempts to be worthy and recognize that we're, we are deemed worthy unconditionally by the love of God. Now, again, modern scholars look at this and they call it a moral example theory of atonement. And their reasoning is this. Wow, if God loves us for like that on the cross, how should we treat other people who have not been kind to us? How should we treat people that we consider our enemies or strangers or, or have hurt us in some way? And so they say the cross is not only a picture of the, um, the love of God, but it's an example of the way we love others. Final picture is this. You, and Paul liked to talk about this on a number of occasions to the Corinthians, to the Colossians. Uh, oftentimes he will talk about this picture of what we call reconciliation, which means there's a divide between two parties how will that divide be bridged? And so uh, you've probably seen this picture before. Here's God, holy, righteous, loving, just. Uh, God is so wonderful uh, and so not like me. And here I am over here on earth and I'm a sinner and I've made mistakes and I'm imperfect. How will that gulf between my sin and God's perfect holiness how will that gulf ever be bridged? How will the chasm between earth and heaven ever be crossed? And so what happens on the cross of Christ is you see that reconciliation. And the horizontal beam is what connects heaven now to earth. And two parties, once estranged, are reconciled. And so what happens is heaven comes to earth by crossing over the bridge of the cross. And two people formerly, uh, perhaps at odds, are now joined together. Perhaps uh, God and people, people and people, maybe even the world uh, is is drawn back into picture and so into one unified picture and so that is, we might call a, a reconciliation picture and that seems to be one of Paul's favorite pictures because he tells us that our jobs as Christians is to be ambassadors of reconciliation and there's not only these six pictures but there's two sounds that I want to make you aware of because as you know Easterners are very attuned to their senses not just their eyes but especially the Jews, to what they hear. And the first sound I want you to hear is the crying on the cross. Matthew and Mark are very clear that Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you hear what's going on there? That is called, we might call like an identification theory of atonement, that one of the things that happens on the cross is God experiences everything it is to be human, including abandonment. Despair, or dare we say, God forsakenness. That, that God came in Christ into the world, and part of reconciling the world to God through Christ was that God in Christ, Jesus, experienced everything it is to be human, to love and to laugh and, uh, and, and to play and, uh, and to be rejected and to suffer and to even die. 
The author to Hebrews puts it this way. In Hebrews 4, it's a double negative if you will be attentive here. We have in Jesus someone who is, here it comes, not unable to sympathize us with, with us in our weakness. Did you catch the double negative? Not unable. In other words, Jesus has come, lived life among us, and even experienced death that we will all experience. So anything you go through in life, Jesus has already been there. Alone, he gets it. Suffering, he gets it. Falsely accused, he knows that one too. All the way to death, he's been there. He is not unable to sympathize with us. And God completely experiences what it is to be a human being in Jesus and comes to identify us with us in new and very profound ways. It, this may be illustrated by a story that happened from the Second World War. There was a chaplain whose unfortunate duty was to go to homes of people uh, in the area to let them know when their sons had, had died in the Second World War. So he pulls his Jeep up in front of one house. The father's looking out the window, sees the Jeep, and he knows the deal. And so he opens the door, and as the chaplain comes forward, he, he starts to cry, and he says, Father, Father, tell me, where was God when my son was killed? And the priest thought about it for a moment, appropriately was silent, and then quietly, but in confidence, offered this answer and said, I suppose that he was in the same place where he was when his own son was killed. There is this sense in that sound on the cross that God knows and gets everything that we go through in life. And whatever we go through, we will never be alone. Final sound on. And very few people, I think, tie this with the cross. So this put a little asterisk. This is mine with some help from a scholar. But there's an amazing sound that's made in Romans 8. Famous chapter in the Bible, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? Before that, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And, you know, and then before that, all things work for good with those who love us who, and uh, love God and are called according to God's purpose. But then before that, I consider that the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then Paul goes on to say, all creation is, anybody know the sound it makes? Groaning, yes, with labor pains. All creation is waiting and sighing for something that is about to happen. All creation is waiting to be put back together, for the earth to come back on its axis, for sin and death, estrangement, loneliness, cancer, you name it, to be eliminated. And it starts there at the cross. The sound that you're hearing is the sound of a groan that is about to be answered. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this. He says, it is easy to belittle the cross theologically by saying it is only about Jesus dying for my sins when there is so much more involved. More happens on the cross than you and I will ever grasp in this lifetime. But one thing of which we can be assured when we look at the cross, whatever is going on, what is going on is love. Now, surprisingly, for the first few centuries of the church, they, except for Paul, they didn't really talk much about the cross. They talked about an even more amazing, in their mind, demonstration of love. They talked about the resurrection. And we'll talk about that next week.